Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. So there's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about Kaholavan leader Benny Gantz's reversal, going from an anti-Netanyahu platform to reaching out to the prime minister for a unity government. But Gantz wasn't the only one contemplating a switcheroo. Labor Party leader Amir Peretz is also looking to join a Netanyahu-led government, along with Labor MK Itzik Shmuli, with MK Merav Michaeli opposing the move. If you've been following closely what Eli was saying, you'll notice that he only named three Labor members of Knesset, because that's all the seats that the party won in March. Remember that this is the party whose antecedents founded the State of Israel and governed nearly uninterrupted for 30 years. It produced seven prime ministers, David Ben-Gurion, Moshe Sharet, Levi Eshkol, Golda Meir, Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, and Ehud Barak. So what happened? To help understand this story, we're joined by Stav Shafir. Stav was a leader in the 2011 Israeli social justice protests. When she entered the Knesset in 2013 on the Labor Party list, she was the youngest woman to ever be elected in Israeli history. She served with Labor until fall 2019, when she helped to establish the Democratic Union before leaving the Knesset after the September elections. Today, she's the chair of the Green Movement. Stav, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Shalom, Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. So Stav, first, how are you doing? Obviously challenging times, how are you holding up? Yeah, it's very challenging times. For me personally, it's challenging in in several ways. My first month out of politics and we see in politics and the direction that our camp in politics is taking uh, is very is very disappointing um, and very difficult uh, to watch. And at the, when when all of that is happening within a huge global crisis and within it a national crisis, when we are confronted both by the threat of the um, coronavirus and the threat of losing our democracy. That has become very difficult, very challenging time. Definitely. So before we get into what's happening now, let's just take a step back. In 2011, after the social justice protests, when you entered politics, you decided to run for the Labor Party. We spoke about what's happened with the Labor Party today. Why did you choose Labor uh, back then? For me, actually, the after the protest movement in 2011, the biggest choice was whether to enter politics or not. Once I decided that politics should be a path that we have to seek if we want to have power for, for my generation over um, decision-making and, and the direction that our country is taking, deciding what party I should take was an easy choice um, because Labour Party spoke my values, my ideology. I, I was well aware, well, maybe not aware as much as I learned uh, within a few a few years, but but at the time, I was I was a bit aware of of the situation within Labour, the difficulty um, in keeping and building leadership, the the lack of infrastructure in the left in general, the the disappointment from current leaders, the 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 fact that leaders were replaced quite often, the tendency to get into right wing governments, all of that were things that I knew, and at the same time, I expected that Labour would have the courage to grow a new generation of, of voters, of registered members, of leaders. Uh, and, I would, and I knew that I would have, that part of my job would be to bring these young people into labor and try to change it from within. 
You mentioned some of the problems that labor was facing. You just named that there was a lack of party infrastructure, that they would flip-flop in and out of right-wing governments, that leaders would be cycled through in fairly quick succession. Why do you think that the party was facing those kinds of problems? The left in Israel never, or in the last um, almost you know, 25 years at least, the left didn't understand that although the right wing is in government, the values that people believe in are actually becoming more and more progressive. If you check what Israelis believe in, you see that over 60% believe in the two-state solution. And, you know, after 40 years of right wing governments, almost straight with no, with hardly any breaks, having this kind of numbers supporting a two-state solution is quite high. Of course, not not the number that we would like, but it still is it still is a majority. Uh, when it comes to uh, social services and and economic perceptions, um, ask anyone on the street in Israel if they're willing to um, pay more money in order to fund the health services of somebody they don't know. Ninety two percent of the people you would meet would say yes, definitely. I assume that now these days it's actually becoming higher. Yeah, and also civil marriage as well. And yes, yeah, civil marriage. Um, LGBT rights, you have 75% support there. So so the majority of Israelis is actually quite left-wing in their opinions. But when it comes to believing in the ability to win, to take political power, that's where the left has been stuck for decades. We had leadership that just didn't believe that it was able to win. What we see now with Kholavar, um, with blue and white parties, is the biggest manifestation of that. It's a party that actually won elections three times. They managed, and, and the entire camp, with a lot of sacrifice, with a lot of give up, managed to get Netanyahu to not have, to not earn the 61 seats that he needed in order to, to, to stay prime minister. And although that victory was very much in our hands, the leadership, the leadership just decided in the very last minute to give it all up. And, and I think that's the biggest manifestation of that. Um, giving up on, on these kind of values happened throughout the years. You know, instead of fighting against um, settlement funding, for example, one of the core values of, of, of the extreme right wing um, within government, most um, people on the left in politics were afraid to touch that subject. It was too scary. Um, uh, it, it created too much... Um, Political, political fear mainly. Um, it would get them exposed to, to even violence. Uh, as, as some of us who, who fought that fight experienced um, so often. So this kind of things, not being able to enter the core fight of our times, uh, being the fight for, for our democracy, the for, for, the, uh, for the law itself, for uh, human rights and civil rights, for um, a separation between us and the Palestinians and a real border like in any other normal country, uh, for the end of the conflict, for peace, all of these really, um, all of the difficult fights were just not fought. And, and people and the leaders of the left decided to give it all up, to try to flatter the right wing and, and, and sometimes even you know, pretend to be more right-wing, uh, and slowly they just lost um, for the camp uh, and for the public who supported them. They they lost uh, that ability uh, to 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 take uh, leadership again and again and again. And you spoke about 
giving up. And I think not just the decision to join the Netanyahu government, but what's been reported in the last few days about agreeing reportedly Benny Gantz and Boo and White to just let the, this government, should it come together, go forward with uh, annexation of parts of the West Bank, which could have disastrous consequences for Israel. So I think that just illustrates your point about uh, giving in uh, to the right. Yeah, I'll tell you a story that maybe is the best example for that. When when I was um, quite a fresh uh, member of parliament and sitting in the finance committee uh, maybe five years ago, I exposed uh, a huge corruption story that happened within something that is called an institution that is half governmental, half private, um, that is called the settlement division. And that organization was supposed to, um, it was not actually for settlement. The word settlement in Hebrew means a lot of things, but not just things that are, not just um, uh, places within the, uh, uh, behind the, the green line. Uh, it was supposed to take care of building within the Israeli periphery, the south, the, the Galil, the Golan Heights, um, the, the places around the Gaza border. It was actually a pretty important institution. But what I discovered was that throughout that year, billions and billions of shekels that were supposed to be given and um, invested within the Israeli periphery were actually invested in the Jewish settlements within the West Bank. Uh, And all of that process was illegal, corrupt, was made in secret. And I exposed all of that. And when I fought in the finance committee to stop that illegal money transfer, I looked around me, and my party, the Labour Party, was not there. And suddenly I started to get all of these warnings from Labour Party uh, leadership that I should stop. And when I asked, why, what's going on? Why would you want me to stop? That's a really important fight. It's a fight for our tax money. It's a fight for equality. It's a fight against investing in the settlements and preventing uh, a peace process. It's, it's a really important fight. And they just told me, no, you know, it's not, it's not something you want to get into. Um, we don't need to get into this kind of fight with the coalition, with the government. Um, it's a too delicate issue and all of this kind of nonsense. And, and in reality, what troubled some of the uh, members uh, of the party was the fact that that settlement division was also given um, very, very small amounts of money to uh, things that helped uh, certain political interests within the party. It was all just mostly pure corruption, but, but, and everybody knew, but that was the kind of things that are kept in secret between politicians, and they hated the fact that I op- opened it up and made it transparent to the public um, and fought that fight. And, you know, this kind of, and of course, I, I didn't stop uh, because of these warnings. And eventually the settlement uh, division got into police investigation. There is a very important um, state controller report on the illegal budget transfers. And today um, there are there is much more regulation on this, uh, not the regulation, but parliamentary overseeing um, on this money that is preventing uh, some of this uh, corruption that happened there. But, you know, the reality where a political party that's supposed to fight for, its, for the people, uh, that's supposed to fight for our values, 
But instead of fighting, every time when there is something, there is a really big challenge, it's just, you know, it, get, it just gets scared and, and, and runs away from the challenge, from the conflict. So it can't, it can't all, it, it can never win. And I think what, what happened to the public that supported um, our camp in politics was that it lost. Um, both the pride, um, and pride is something that's really important in a political process and elections. You have to be proud in your values and in your ideology, and and you have to really want it to, to work and believe that it can work. Um, and it became really defeatist. And, and we see the same process happening again and again. What it makes young people believe is that politics is uh, becoming meaningless to us, and, and it's not really the place where you can make a change. And that's, of course, a vicious cycle where um, the be- you know when if 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 we don't encourage the best people um, and leaders uh, in society who comes from the field and understand the issues and if we don't encourage them to get into politics and try to influence from within the political system, so we get stuck with those who are getting into pol- politics from the for the wrong reason. You mentioned having pride in the values that you're advocating or in the cause that you're working toward. And even for all the problems that labor was having, it's still a symbol for the Israeli left and the Israeli center left, this longstanding institution that was so much uh, a part of the state and is now maybe not going to be there. I mean, party fortunes ebb and flow, and I think people forget that in 2006, just 14 years ago, Netanyahu only won 12 seats at the head of Likud. Uh, Today he is 36 and in a lot of ways feels unstoppable. But what's happened to labor feels different. In 1992, labor had, I think, 44 seats in the Knesset, more than any one party has now. In your own time in the Knesset, you saw a pretty dramatic shift as well. From 2015 until last April, Labor had 18 seats as part of the Zionist Union alliance. In April, it dropped to six, and then five in September, and then three in March, and now the party is splitting up now. So how does the Israeli left rebuild from what is really the total collapse of the flagship party, or at least what had been the flagship party for many decades? Well, you know, it's not, uh, I never, I guess, because the the, the peak or, or this number that you were talking about, 90, about 1992 uh, that Labour had, I was seven years old at the time. So I, what, what I, what I missed about that time is not the power of Labour as much as I miss the kind of leadership that Itzhak Rabin um, as prime minister had. What I remember from these times that were, you know, part of my childhood um, is how my own um, grandfather, uh, was also named Itzhak, uh, took me to meet all of his um, Palmach buddies uh, from, from his, you know, pre-military service. He, got, he went to fight the independence war when he was 14. And, and it took me as a kid, to, to meet his friends from the war and his, and his own commander, the, the prime minister, Itzhak Rabin. And I remember how um, Rabin was sitting there in the sun, uh, surrounded by kids um, who were my age at the time. And, and all he uh, asked us was, what do you dream to be when, when you grow up? What do you dream that our country 
can be. And I, you know, the kind of memories that I have from these times are how Rabin signed uh, the peace agreement again and then again, and how he had to fight um, against so much hatred and violence and threats when he, as a warrior and as a warrior for peace, said that he knows that the most secure and safe thing for Israel is to make peace. And and how he had the, the courage to stand there and to suffer from all of that in order to lead our country into a better future. And he lost his life um, trying to achieve that. That's, you know, that's what I what I miss in, in those times were not the political party that labor is, but the leadership that it could have. And and as grown-ups, my generation didn't experience that. And and the younger generation today has even a worse experience. You know, when, when Netanyahu, um, as prime minister, is using social networks, so on Instagram, for example, when he knows the average age on Instagram for Israelis would be, I don't know, 15. So he's getting on Instagram to, to make um, stories about, that make jokes of corruption. He, he up- uploads stories that make corruption seem like a joke, like something that is part of politics. Now, that's something that is so shameful and, and, and is not just bad, you know, temporary, temporarily bad leadership. That's something that is giving the worst political education to the young generation. That's something that people, that young people might learn from and think, okay, that's what politics looks like. That, that's, you know, maybe it's logical. Maybe that's how things should be. You know, I am asked by people, by, by teenagers on Instagram, um, many times I am asked by them, do you think that the reason that you're not in politics is, be- is because you can't be corrupt like them? And you know, when I when I hear this kind of questions from young people, and I'm thinking, God, why should these teenagers think that politics and corruption are the same things, and like, and that normal, sane people who just care for their society's future cannot be part of politics? That maybe them as teenagers really care should not go into politics at all. And that's what I'm afraid of. Political parties are just. I'm sorry, but just the legal structure. Eventually, um, it's less it's less important than your football team. It's it's in for America. I know that you know is, and I wish you to continue to be a two-party system because I think Israel would have been much better off if we only had two parties and not two hundred. Um, but in the situation of Israel. Political parties are not as important as the leadership that they bring. Um, so I don't see the shift from one party to another as that crucial. What I see as a problematic is that our entire political system, and that's both left and right, um, lost a lot of its ideology, of its values, of its ability to have a political discussion around values and plans and visions. You know, it's funny that you say that because I think a lot of Americans, by the way, would would disagree that we're totally happy with the two party system. Although I don't see it changing any, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Even if it's not about a party, the specific party itself, whether it's Labor, whether it's Kachalavan, or whoever is carrying the banner at the time, 
the bottom line here is that the baseline for the opposition right now has changed. You mentioned the kind of messages that Netanyahu is sending to a new generation. I can only imagine what younger people's perception of the different values of the various parties are today because of the way the opposition is so mismatched. I mean, with the collapse of the Labour Party, you have Meretz, which is, of course, the traditional leftist Zionist party. The, the joint list is predominantly Israeli-Arab. You have Yeshatid, a centrist party, Telem, right-wing, but anti-Netanyahu, and Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Beitenu, which is very right-wing, secular party. Uh, he's anti-Netanyahu for now, uh, but very right-wing. How do you build a cohesive message from all of those parts? Yeah, but that's exactly the thing. I mean, you, you described them um, perfectly well in terms of their alleged ideology, but is it really their ideology? I mean, is there really an ideological political discussion? I mean, look at the, the negotiations right now between Labour and Blue and White and Netanyahu. There was no ideological discussion. They basically um, agreed to sign an agreement that is going to lead to an annexation of the West Bank and a complete loss of the Zionist dream and of the future of Israel as Jewish and, dem and democratic. They were willing to sign this agreement. Likud is now, uh, as for this hour, but all of this can change in minutes, but Likud um, stopped the negotiation right now. But this is, that's, that's, that's a piece of, of paper that Labour was, was agreeing to sign. So what's the ideological discussion about it? We are in the midst of a huge economic crisis here. There is 25% um, of um, unemployment these days. It's over a million um, unemployed Israelis right now. But nobody talked about a solution to this problem. Nobody um, showed any uh, reluctance to sign an agreement when the government didn't bring to the table any serious financial um, plan for how we're going to deal with the crisis. So there was no ideology. So why would the voters think, why should the voters think that there is an ideological discussion when it's not part of the game? The only discourse within the elections uh, were one, a very racist discourse, um, where the uh, where Netanyahu and his allies um, tried to turn all the hatred towards the, the Arab voters, which was a racist and a disgusting discussion, um, and that was one of the, the which I cannot believe that can still happen in 2020. Uh, and that was one of the discussions of the elections. And the other discussion was Netanyahu or not Netanyahu. And I have to tell you, as someone who is in opposition to Netanyahu for for a very long time, I am bored of this discussion. I don't think it's important anymore. I think that our role today is to um, teach people again what democracy means, to have this discourse, how democracy can be improved, because obviously our democracy, um, which confronted so many challenges in the last decade, um, is really struggling right now. And I think that's not just an Israeli discussion. It's more, it's more and more a global discussion um, confronting political populism coming from the right wing. Um, what, how democracy can be improved. That's one discussion that we have to do in politics. And the other one, um, as for Israel, is about a vision and, and what, sh what this vision should be, um, about how we change the sectarianism of Israeli politics, how we move from 
been tribes of Jews, Arabs, ultra-Orthodox, religious, secular, into being one Israeli society, as we were supposed to be. It's our 72-year birthday. Uh, we, we, we have to become an Israeli society and not a sectoral, um, tribal society. Um, we need to make a discussion on how we're going to define our borders. It's about time. It's the most crucial challenge that we have. And, and these discussions are not even talked about in our politics. So why does it matter if one party is declaring a certain ideology if you're not willing to fight for it? I think that's the gap. Well, there's also, I mean, you're, the way you're framing it is that there's no ideological discussion or there's no political discussion, but it seems like there is. There's a discussion about annexation. There's a discussion about the courts. There's a discussion. There's, a, as you said, a, a racist discussion, but there's, I don't want to say there's no opposition. There's a very small opposition. Um, so so there's, there's no pushback against these different ideas. What does it mean for the critical or the opposition ideas to be absent and for the opposition institutions to not be there when these discussions are happening. I mean, for the longest time, I think people perceived Netanyahu as being kind of a status quo politician when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and annexation that he would espouse these hawkish positions, but it was just uh, for the sake of political expediency. And he would never actually annex, but now it seems, based on the latest agreement, as you mentioned, with Kahol Lavan and with the Labor Party, that annexation could be on the table as early as the summer. And also, I'll just add to that, the two people who you ran against in the Labor leadership primary, Itzik Shmuley and Amir Peretz, are in the thick of these talks. Does that uh, surprise you? I mean, these were your colleagues. Is this something that you like expected, or are you even surprised by how they've just thrown the party's ideology, party uh, stood for historically, um, they've kind of just thrown that out completely. You know, I think saying that just taught me how heartbroken you can be from something your expectations of were so low from the beginning with. Um, I can't say that it was a surprise. Uh, when I ran um, to chair labor, um, well, almost a year ago. It was a long year, so <laughs> difficult to calculate. Um, but when I ran to chair labor, I did it with one aim. I wanted to unite the left. I knew that labor is crucial for that. Labor has to lead that union, uh, but it, to lead the existence of the union. It was clear at the time that blue and white will be the biggest party, but it was clear that if we wanted the Israeli left to be we needed to be united. We had to unite with Meretz. We had to unite with the Hood Barak's party at the time. And I ran to chair labor in order to do that. And I knew that if I would not win, there is a high chance that Amir Peretz and Shmuley would not want to unite the parties. They knew what they thought about it. And I knew that there would be a high chances of them entering Netanyahu's government. Um, and I was afraid of that, and I tried to prevent it. And I also know that, and 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 all of that happened sadly. Uh, sadly. Um, after uh, when I when I um, only got second um, after that race, I tried to make um, the chosen, the elected uh, leader Amir Peretz. I tried to um, convince him to do to create the union, which he, by the way, promised that he would do, uh, but then he refused to do it, and that made me leave labor and start democratic union in order to create a union between Barak and Meretz. 
if we didn't do that union in the previous elections, Netanyahu would have won because Meretz and Barak, uh, Barak's party would not cross the threshold and maybe even labor. The left would be just, could just be destroyed at the time. Um, but then when um, we had another, the third round of elections, when uh, Peretz and Shmuley and the others tried to push me out of that union, in my heart, I knew that the reason they were doing that was because they wanted to keep the option of entering Netanyahu's government. And they knew that if I'm there, there is no option of that happening. In the previous opportunities, when something like that almost happened a few years ago, I, I stopped it. And, and that was the deal. So I can't say that I'm surprised. Uh, I am very worried. I think that the lack of belief that it creates amongst, amongst uh, voters when they see that kind of betrayal um, is something that takes a lot of time to fix. And I think that when, when politicians make these kind of decisions and, and, and betray what, the, what their voters voted for them to do, and this is not just the case of you know, politicians from the left who are collaborating with the right, there are many, many situations when a collaboration between the left and the right is crucial, many situations, but not a situation when um, you're allowing a corrupt prime minister who has no moral limits um, and is not working in serving your country, but is working only for his own political and, and personal interest, when you allow him to stay in government and lead it while having three big corruption cases that he has to deal with in court, while all the time hurting democracy and diminishing democracy in such way, while using so much racism against citizens in your country, that's a shameful act that should not be done. And that's really hurting. Um, it will take, you know, we are, we believe in the power of politics. We don't believe in despair, and we should never be despair. Um, we need to understand that it takes time to fix um, uh, this kind of deeds. And, and, to, and today also, as someone who came from a protest movement and then you know, convinced myself and convinced the, the people who were there with me that we should be in politics and have to make the change from in, within politics, now also personally, I need to find a way of how we can influence from outside of politics, because politics became very disappointing, and how for a few years we're going to build our camp and our future party from the outside, how we're going to build an infrastructure for the left, and how we're going to um, build bases uh, that are really, really important and that we're missing today within the media, within the fieldwork, within the ideas and, 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 and of networks, and we have so many things that we have to build. So doing that, you know, crossing that border between politics and the outside world um, is today something that is within our mission. We have to find a ways of becoming more effective, although we are not in politics. Stav, on that note, when you left labor to establish the Democratic Union in the second round of elections, you mentioned Amir Peretz. He went another route. He made a right wing merger with Orly Levy's Gesher party, because by his calculations, he thought that that was a way he could 
reach out to new voters, to get voters from the Israeli periphery, voters that traditionally vote Likud in cities in the south, such as Sderot, um, in Beersheba, and places like that. And he thought that that partnership with Orla Levy would, would, do, would do that. Um, that turned out to be to fail, um, especially um, in this last round of elections. He ended up doing the opposite, uh, taking votes from the left and moving them to the right. Exactly. So my question is, how can we take these ideas that most uh, Israelis agree and support and communicate them outside of the Gush Dan circle and outside of like maybe the kibbutzim and the small moshavim into these areas um, of Israel that probably need these ideas uh, to be implemented most? I think we need to... Well, there is something, there is always a very romantic um, thinking within the left, saying we need to be, um, it's all about being present, which is something that, you know, it has a lot of truth to it. We need to be more present. We need to to live, to be, to spend time um, in all of these places and, and societies where we want to to make a change. Truth is, when you actually check what the left is doing versus what the right is doing, um, the left-wing parties invest much more in being on the ground. I'm, I can speak for myself and for my former colleagues. We were constantly traveling around the country, talking to people. I had volunteers from every city in the country. Um, I lived in many places that were not in the center of the country, and I um, and, and there were a lot of activists that came from there. It's actually not the place where we are the weakest. The places that we lost were in the foundations of the, of the democratic uh, infrastructure. We lost the media completely. The media in Israel became almost entirely serving the right. There is a perception that was developed by, by the right wing, by, by Netanyahu himself, actually, that the media is left-wing. So every time the media criticizes him or talks about his corruption allegations, he attacks them as being um, too leftist or Israel haters even. But actually, the media became almost entirely right-wing. If you calculate the amount of uh, media exposure that right-wing leaders get versus left-wing leaders or opposition, opposition voices in general, you see that it gets to over 75% right-wing. Um, you don't see enough representation of, for example, um, Arabs who, who are Israeli citizens. Uh, you don't see enough representation of women, definitely not when it comes to security issues. Hardly any, actually. Um, you, but, and, and, and not just in terms of representation. The discourse is very superficial, um, and there are only a few courageous journalists um, still doing their job. And I think these are the places, I know it's not popular to say, because uh, really the first approach that I talked about is much more um, romantic, but actually what the left lost was the media, was the ability to talk and show, expose people to the truth. And the other place was parliament itself. Um, the power in Israel, the separation between um, parliament and government, or the separation of entities, uh, is not very is not very clear. The government can actually completely uh, control parliament, and with the years, especially in the last decade, the power of parliament is overseeing what the government is doing, 
uh, as forcing government to, to be accountable for its actions, uh, that power became just it just got lost mostly. Uh, and and you know when Parliament is becoming weaker, it's the citizens who become weaker because they don't know because they, there is no transparency. They have no idea what the government is actually doing. You know, I, I remember my fight on opening the state budget, which is something that, you know, you almost take for granted the state budget is supposed to be transparent to the public, right? It's, it's our money. It's our tax money. It's supposed to be completely transparent, maybe only um, except for, you know, very secret security information. Uh, but that's, a, that's supposed to be a small chunk of the budget. Everything is supposed to be open. But it took me a year-long struggle together with thousands of activists to open up the state budget. And when, the, when, when citizens don't know what happens with their money, how decisions are being made, they also can't have control over their lives. And that's the other part, place where, where the left lost, because with a lack of representation, um, an ability to, to be an opposition from within parliament, it also lost power. And I think these are the two bases that we have to rebuild. So it's the ability of people to influence politicians. It's the ability to influence through the mass media and also through social networks. But the mass media is crucial to that. Um, and that's within, again, if you think about Israel, it's very different from the U.S. Uh, because Hebrew readers are a smaller amount of people. So we only have three big newspapers and three, three plus, but three big uh, media channels. So it's a very small and concentrated market. And within that market, we need to see much more competition, but a competition over who is telling the truth and not who is more flattering um, to the right wing. So it's clear that there are a lot of factors that have brought Israel and Israeli politics to the point where they are now, and I don't want to chalk anything up to just one issue making things the way they are today. But if you could tell the leaders in the Knesset, uh, political leaders in the opposition, one thing to change course and do something different to try to achieve their goals, what would it be? Well, I do tell them all the time, but um, I actually don't think, I I, I think I, I tried um, every possible way of trying to influence politicians. And, and, and what's really important now is to influence the public and how the public perceives what politicians should do for the public. I think, you know, we're now... Um, starting the, the festival when we celebrate uh, our freedom. Pesach is the times where, for us Jews, it's, it's, it's the release, it's, it's to become free from a past of, of being slaves. But, but I think for many Israelis, they feel more like they're becoming slaves and like the government is not really serving them. Part of our national anthem is to be Leot Am Marzenu, to be free people in our own land. And I think to achieve that dream, it also takes an internal belief that we have the right to be free, that we're supposed to aim for something greater. When I see 
how people, and that's both for politicians and for the public, when people limit and 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 take their goals down, like they don't believe in their own dreams anymore, um, and their expectations get so low. So you can't also you can't achieve big things when your expectations are that low. You need to be to have higher expectations, and that's what I hope from our political system and from our society to have to understand that our government owes us more, that our politicians and our leaders need to serve us. They need to fight for us. They need to be willing to sacrifice for us. And and one of the greatest things about being a public servant and 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 or, or, or and a politician, an elected politician, is that even when you you know, sometimes you're working like really, really hard and and sometimes you suffer from this job. Um and sometimes it's it's even really painful and and you get threats and, and you're afraid and you're, you're angry. But, you know, having that sense of I'm doing this not for myself. I'm doing this for for others. I'm doing this for the people that I represent. This is not about me. This is about my society. It's much bigger than me. And I'm not that important. And and that sense is very, it's really releasing. It, it's really helpful to do something bigger than what we usually do. And I think that's what I expect from my political system. That's what I expect from my society, to have this notion that is so strong within our legacy, within our tradition of tikkun olam, of trying to make the world better. But really, to feel, to feel that, that we have to aim for, for something bigger. Stav, uh, before we go, uh, for all the Stav fans out there, can you give us a hint of... Uh... What's your plan for the future? Where to next? It's. I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I. <laughs> I really expected. Admit that I really expected. Um, after nine years of being in within the political uh, system and and not taking any holiday, I really expected to take some time off. And then the coronavirus came, uh, so that didn't happen. Uh, and I don't know. I I. I'm trying to build the and find new ways of making politics from outside of politics. I'm building the green movement as uh, mainly a movement that is talking to uh, teenagers about the future of our country. We're not dealing with the past anymore. Um, we're just dealing with finding a vision um, that is a vision of sustainability on all fronts of life, from a Green New Deal to peacemaking, uh, between Israel and Palestine. It's, and, and that's the kind of vision that I want young people to start and believe in. And that's my focus within the Green Movement and why I think the Green Movement is also the future of the Israeli left. Uh, but that's a long process and a long-term process. In, in, while doing that, I will put a lot of my focus on building an infrastructure, on trying to get great people who come from the fields of education and technology and health to find their way into the political spectrum uh, and, and into the political sphere and into leadership um, and be a better example of politics from what we see now within the system. And, and I'm going to think about it as a long-term plan. Uh, I understand that something that is very hard for activists to understand, um, especially for activists that experienced 
you know, something as big as the 2011 uh, protest movement that, that felt like a miracle to all of us uh, to have a million Israelis marching on the street for change. But what we actually need to grab is the understanding that real change is a long-term process, and we have to, we really need the courage and sustainability to take this long-term mission upon ourselves. An important message, and good luck. Definitely. And when you're having uh, elections every three months, it's even harder to think about things in a long-term uh, perspective. <laughs> but but on that note... Well, if nothing else, there's a lot of time to yeah, think Yeah, there's a lot right of time now. to think, for sure. Uh, one more thing to that. I think that the virus and this atmosphere is also giving us an opportunity, which I think we have to grab. And, and what we're dealing here here in Israel in politics is not just Israeli. And the threat on democracy is, her, is happening globally. It's happening within the United States. It's happening um, in, in a few countries in Europe. It's happening, of course, um, in, in so many other places. This is a global problem. And if we want to change it, there is also a global solution. It's both local and global, but we need to start collaborating globally on finding the, the local solutions. Uh, to this struggle that is so very important and will take more time to solve than the coronavirus. Right, and that's something as as you mentioned, you see, you see, and and certainly in Hungary recently. So with that, the uh, Hatzlacha, good luck with your local solution to, as you've laid out, a global problem. And Chag Sameach, happy Passover to you and to all of our listeners. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. So. Coming up, we have more programs through our Israel Policy Hub initiative. That's our collection of digital resources specially curated for remote learning. And as part of that program, we're doing webinars every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And this coming Tuesday, April 14th, we're going to have a good friend of the organization, Colonel Shaul Arieli, a retired officer from the Israel Defense Forces and one of the foremost experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he will be talking about the Trump plan. It's still out there. It could be the basis of the annexation plans that are coming up through Israeli politics right now, so definitely make sure to tune in to that one. And you can register for that program on the Israel Policy Hub website at ipf.li forward slash hub. And we hope that you'll join us for that webinar and all of our other future opportunities. Stay safe, be healthy, be well, and happy Passover, or happy Easter, or happy day, whatever your persuasion. Chag Sameach. Yalla, bye.